This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, LS Pod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Love strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen proudly sponsored by the stfc official supporters club rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot for agreeing to take part in this Swindon Town podcast, even though your South Swindon was very, very small. Ten games, ten weeks, I think. <laughs> so, um, the the end of the glory days, wasn't it? And I think Swindon are still paying for it even now, aren't they? Yeah, we don't like to talk about it, but yes. Yeah, so who did you support as a kid and who were your early football heroes? Uh, early football heroes? Well, I, I, I was always, well, I've lived in the Redding area most of my life, so Redding are my hometown team, if you want. And I used to go down and watch them play so I, w- I would say the Reading players of well the Reading team of that time heroes I didn't really have great heroes I mean obviously we George Best was the sort of best player of the generation I was watching and you know obviously um his career was one that you looked at looked at and I think I actually saw him play down at Elm Park in a Watney Cup game for Man United against Reading I think many many years ago I stood in Terracing so I actually saw him play at that time which is ironic because um, I was Northern Ireland manager when he later died. In fact, he, I, I touched base with him a couple of times in my life. He came to Reading when I was a player and played um, in a game against New Zealand, a friendly against New Zealand for some reason. Turned up 10 minutes before the game started. Introduced to the players, went out, played. And uh, I've got a picture of me and him in the tunnel at Elm Park, which is quite nice. Unfortunately, the other aspect is I, I was manager in Northern Ireland when he died. So I had to represent Northern Ireland football. Um, at both of his funerals, both in Belfast and in Manchester. 
So, um, yeah, probably, you know, George Best if you're going to go back and say someone. Mm. And, I mean, Redden had its own tragic figure as well at that time, of course. Robin Friday, what, did you see him play? A little bit. I, I think I saw him play a couple of times. I mean, he, he was just prior to me joining. I think he was a season before I actually made my debut for Redden. So by that time, of course, on Saturdays, um, you know, going to football was out the window because I was, I was playing as much football as I possibly could. So weekends, you weren't actually going to games. You were you were playing. But Robin, I think, left Reading the year before I joined. I think he left in 76, didn't he, to go mm-hmm. to yeah. Cardiff. Mm-hmm. But I think he only played something like 87 games for Reading or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he was voted the all-time best player to ever play for Reading, which is a, a strange one. I mean, he must have been, you know, perhaps I didn't see the best of him. He must have been a stunning player for that to, to be... And unfortunately, again, his life ended in a in a rather tragic way. Yeah. So, spending most of your childhood in Berkshire, what are your early memories of playing football, and then, of course, making your way into the game itself? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, I mean, I played for school, then I went to play for town, then I went to play for county, then I went to play for South East England, and it was, I wouldn't say a natural progression each time, but obviously, I was of an ability where um, I was able to progress, and then. As a schoolboy, I was at Southampton as a schoolboy, uh, as an associate schoolboy with them, um, right up to the time I finished my O-levels. And then at that stage, Laurie McManamy, his manager, said, look, if, if you're not staying on to be an apprentice, as was in those days, then, um, you know, I think you have to move on. So I wasn't desperately unhappy with that. I mean, it was it was, um, it was was 1977. In fact, it just got to the FA Cup final. So I, I left there and, of course, I, I signed straight away for Reading as a schoolboy. And I'd made my debut for the Reading first team by October of the following year. So, you know, while I was still studying for my A-level. So it all worked out well in the end. And I was fortunate enough to play for Reading for seven years. So, you know, I made my debut as a schoolboy. Ironically, you know, talking about life's full circles, against Wimbledon. Their first year in the fourth division, first year in the league, I think, 1978. uh, 1977, in fact. And I played them as I say, my debut 1st of October. So, and Dave Bassett, who went on to be my manager for a number of years at Wimbledon, was playing in midfield because he was still a player then. And um, he was playing alongside another midfielder, a player called Stevie Gallius, who I ended up playing with when I went to Wimbledon some eight, nine years later. And out of all the people that I've talked to who have started out at Southampton or read about, you're one of the first to say that you, you, you weren't taken on because you were too small which seemed to be the way with Southampton back in the day no it wasn't that wasn't one of my weaknesses I've got to say oh, that's one of my you know so um yeah no it's just I I'd gone down there training from about the time of 14 you know they'd see me play for the schools and counties and such like I I didn't really enjoy it, I've got to say I mean you know you go down train you don't really know the rest of the boys uh, then you come home and then you go back down the following day I didn't stay down a lot of the boys sort of came from the north and that stayed down so obviously they built up more of a scenario um, with each other during the time they were there. I, I was literally in for the day, trained, played a few games and then went home. Yeah. Um, so, and I did it for a few few holidays and it was all right. I mean, you know, it, was, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but when they said, to, you know, we're going to let you go, it, it wasn't the end of my world. I thought, well, you know, fair enough. You know, I, I, I want to stay on and do my A-levels, um, you know, but at that time, Morris Evans came in and, and immediately signed me up for Reading. And I was, I, I, as I say, I played in the first team um, while I was still at school. 
Swindon Town podcast, but we are going to talk about Reading because you had a very, very productive and good spell, which I think on the whole, of course, it's not in Reading, but I think nationally it's sort of forgotten about. I kind of think of people like Kevin Horlock and Mike Summerby who had long productive careers at Swindon, but they're known for their exploits elsewhere at Manchester City in both of their cases. So for you, what was it like to be a young pro in, in that era? It was a different world. I mean, we, we pretty much, you know, we started training at 10.30 and we were finished by 12 o'clock. You know, it was that, it was that basics, the wrong word. It's just what everybody did. I mean, I left home at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning because um, I lived in Reading, I was about a quarter of an hour from the ground. Got to the got to the ground about uh, quarter past ten. Got changed. We were out in the training field by ten thirty. Very little warming up. Did an hour and a half. Um, finished by twelve. Got in, showered, and I could be home by one o'clock. And that was my day with Wednesdays off. It was it was a great life for a, for a young kid. It was a great life. In fact, to be fair, I do remember my first first full year as a pro when I I finished school, did my A levels, and then. Um, I signed for Reading full-time as a pro. Um, and in fact, we won the fourth division championship that year. We were champions. Um, and to be fair, I thought that's football is going to be like this every season. You know, we're going to win titles every season. But what you soon learn, it's not. But um, I used to go home and I used to sleep in the afternoon. I, my mum used to go and say, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. But of course, in hindsight, that training was a shock to your system doing it um, every day. And uh, it took me uh, six, six or so months to my body to get used to to burning that energy up. So I used to come home and sleep in the afternoon. And you would have been teammates with players who started their careers in the 60s as well, wouldn't you? So so it must have been such a contrast. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if anybody started their careers in the 60s. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of, of, of the older players would have been in their mid-30s when I was 20, so 10, 15 years. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah, late 60s probably, some of them. Um it was, it was, you know, it, it was a different lifestyle. The culture was different. You ate what you wanted. I mean, I remember you used to pre-match meal. We used to have steak. I mean, you were given the option of chicken or steak. Of course, everybody went for steak because they never had it at home. Um, you know, chance to get a free steak, you were going to take it. And this is at 12 o'clock, you know, pre-match meal before a game. Um, but the thing was, everybody was doing it. What, what you didn't realise two years later was your, in your digestive system, it was about just down at the top of your neck, wasn't it, by then? When you're running around, around, but but everybody was everybody did it. So there was there was no marginal gains in those days. If you want now, it's all about mar- marginal gains is the big word, isn't it? Everything is done to the nth degree to give you those marginal gains because you need them. Otherwise, you're going to be, um, you know, you're going to be usurped by people that are doing that. In my day, everybody was doing the same. I mean, there was big drinking cultures in clubs. Um, you know, after a game, it used to be out on the town for the night. Raz, you know, no think of warming down the morning after games. Um, when I first started, uh, we didn't used to go out to the kickoff. I mean, it was only it was only just probably just after I started as a pro that people, a few people used to go out and have a kick about and warm up. Half the team didn't. The structured, um, you know, warm ups you see today would never. You know, the manager won't be taking you out for a warm up. Those who felt they needed to go out had a little one, but the majority of the players just sat in the dress rooms about quarter two, um, put the gear on, um, and we went out and had a little two minute kick about for the kickoff, and away we went. When I was, and I can't, and I can't remember too many. Uh, it's an easy thing to say, but I can't remember too many pulled hamstrings and pulled this, that, and the other. Um, you know, something you never thought of. No, you come from a generation where everything 
sort of happen so quickly playing wise but as a as a coach what what elements do you take from the 70s 80s into management in the in the 21st century you know the one thing by the time i turned up at fulham as manager um god how many years ago uh, you know i'd managed at wickham i'd managed in ireland i'd managed um at barnet uh i managed in northern ireland and I, ended, I, I, I ended up at Fulham, um, and the one thing that I said to Les Reid, who was, who was my director of football at the time, was when we played, we used to have the the, the luxury coaches. It was called then, where you had about four seats that were sort of um, facing each other, you know, so four table seats, and the rest used to be in the, you know pairs. Um, so I used to hold about 50-odd fifty odd seats, I think, perhaps a little bit less, 45 seats. Because by the time you had the players on, that was 11 players, plus a couple of subs, plus the staff, you had about 14. You could stretch out. You could have you could have two seats yourself to stretch out and have a kip in that. Getting on the bus at Fulham, which had 54-odd seats, luxury coach, there weren't a spare seat, literally. There was not a spare seat. But just the backup staff was so... Backup staff was, was bigger than the players, and that's, this is when we were sudden, we were carrying seven subs, so we had eighteen players then. So it'd gone up from a twelve to eighteen players, but the the support staff was bigger. And I, and I, one thing I said to to my assistants is that we need to we need to simplify this. This is this is too much, you know. Two kit men, two physios, a doctor, two massa two masseurs. Um, it, it it was. I wouldn't say ridiculous, but it got to the nth degree that there was pretty much a support staff member, if not one and a half, for every player, including subs. And I think that is something at the top level that I know this marginal gains, this making sure you cover for everything, this making sure that you know you're doing what everybody else is doing. I do think there is a an over elaboration, and sometimes I think teams at the top level sort of, sort of smaller teams they need to really get back to basics about who is needed um you know who is needed um at a game on a saturday do you need all these people in the dressing room you couldn't give team talks at fulham we had to get half the people out of the dressing room to give a team talk because there weren't enough room in these dressing rooms you know yeah. so, so that, that is one thing simplifying i mean there's a lot of talk about you know uh you know we weren't well prepared we weren't this we weren't that but Simplifying the whole procedure is something that I would, I would, I would definitely um, say. Yeah, and you were um, managed by Morris Evans, who was another figure because obviously he led Oxford to the League Cup several years later. What was it like working for Morris Evans? I've got to say, I mean, I look back and think Morris was about in his early forties in his first job when he gave me. I mean, he used to come and watch our school games on a Wednesday. We used to play, you know sports day we used to play other schools um, when there were sports leagues in in, in uh, league, leagues in school football I don't know if they still have them now but we used to go and play and Morris Evans used to be you know, used to be sort of in the corner of the field somewhere or tucked up in the building hiding himself from the rain and I, I and my my sports master Mike's son I said to him what's Morris Evans doing here he said oh he's looking at you and I, you know this is schoolboy football and I think well fair enough so when I joined when I actually um, joined Reading, um, to give to give a, a schoolboy the opportunity to play um, in front of professionals 
um, when his job, your job's on the, well, perhaps not so much on the line as it is, you know, it's short term now. In those days, three years was the general lifetime. But to give a young player that opportunity um, for your first job showed tremendous courage um, and tremendous belief in me. And I've got to thank him for that, you know, um, for giving me that opportunity. I thought he was badly treated by Reading. I mean, I think he was sacked when we were third in the league and he was replaced by Ian Bramford because it was a change, change of chairman. Like all things, the chairman wanted his man in place. Ian Bramford took over and I don't think we finished finished higher than the position he we were, he left us in. So that's my first manager. It's a bit like I was talk, listening to the Tottenham boys talking about Pochettino, you know, the young players, the Deli Alleys and this, the Harry Canes. Um, the manager that gave him, you know, be ran to, to his house to see him because he was the one that gave him the opportunities. I mean, we were around to see Morris, you know, when he got the second. He was devastated because it was his town. He played for him. He was a, he was a hero and had, in fact, played with the chairman that sacked him, Roger Smith. Um, was a, a young player, I think, when when Morris was at the end of his career. So it, it, it was. It, I was so pleased for him when Oxford went and won the League Cup. You know, I was so pleased that he'd, he'd you know, gone join Jim Smith at Oxford um, and had finally achieved s- some success because he was he was a good guy and, and a good manager. And I thought, as I say, we won the fourth division championship in his in an, you know his early days at Reading. We got promoted again. Uh, and, the year that he got relegated, the year that he got the sack, we got we went on to to get promoted again. So you know he he, he didn't do bad. I mean I, I haven't got promotion to my name. There's a lot of managers you see Pochettino, they got no no titles to their name. So it's a hard thing to do in football to win a league or win a cup or win anything. During the latter stages of your Reading career, Robert Maxwell famously tried to merge Reading and Oxford to become the Thames Valley Royals, stating that, you know, one, they couldn't sustain in, in football and therefore the region had to be represented. What are your memories of that as a player? I think I was playing in the game where it broke at half-time or something, didn't it? And someone, um, one of the local pressmen, crept crept along the, the uh, director's box to ask the chairman, was it true? Maxwell had just announced that he was going to merge the two, and I, I can't remember the chairman, uh, Waller, Jim Waller. If um, Russell Kempson, I think, was a journalist, if, if, if he writes for the Times now, I think he was. Him or Graham Nicholas, one of the two, and they who both worked locally for the Evening Post, they they crept along the the front of it to ask him, um, the chairman, was it true during the middle of the game? And I was playing in that game, and it sort of broke after the game. And um, as players, you're you're to say you're nonplussed. I mean, you think him. You know, the first thing you think is, how's it going to affect me? Yeah. And none of us really knew, to be honest. But then it, it took its own it took its own life then, didn't they? Roger Smee put a consortium together. Um, some of the board members decided to uh, to fight it. I mean, in the end of the day, public opinion made Jim Wallace stand down. It was, it was all messy. I can understand, you know, having come from a team like Wimbledon that was moved as a franchise, and I think it's the only team to have been moved as a franchise, you can always understand the thinking of why, especially at that time. And, no, you know, nobody thought football would survive. I mean, the 70s and 80s, you know, I remember playing in the 80s, Wimbledon going to Chelsea, and there's sort of 7,000 fans in the place. Both ends of the stadium were being redeveloped. I mean, it was it was literally a shed. And you could walk into the stadium on a Saturday, you know, fences were collapsing, people were getting killed on the way to games with violence and that. To think it's the modern game that you see now, you would never ever contemplate that. So they decided to, you know, Maxwell decided to take it on. 
but Roger Smith pretty much got the board together and stopped it. Would it have been good? Who knows? But I mean, I, I think both Oxford fans and Reading fans are both happy that it didn't ha- didn't happen. You know, Reading have had uh, John Madeski come along, build them a new stadium, get to the Premier League in their own in their own format. But you need a fan base to sustain this. You know, the days of the Wimbledon having no fan base and sustaining Premier League football are gone. You need a massive fan base now to sustain football clubs. Um, Reading and playing in front of fifteen thousand. You know, they can sell out. Although having said that, I see that. See that Bur- um, not Burnley, um, Bournemouth only playing in front of twelve thousand, don't they? So perhaps, perhaps that that is moving away from that now that TV subsidises football. I think you're probably still spot on. And what's really interesting from from what you just said there was you as a footballer acknowledging that football was dying in that era. And was was that a retrospective belief, or at the time did you think how is this game going to last? No, we. I mean, I I remember playing in front of fifteen hundred people. At home to Halifax at Elm Park, and Elm Park wasn't the biggest stadium in the world. And you look round, you're thinking, how do they pay all our wages? You know, how does how do we, how are we full time professionals? Um, and they were losing money. I mean, I think when John Madeski took over Reading, Reading were losing twenty thousand pounds a week, and he was quite happy to come and write a check every Friday to pay the bill. You know, yes, modern teams lose money, but even at the top level, no teams are making money. Now, you see with the, the introduction of um, the, the top money to the game, you see Manchester City selling a, a portion of their their uh, state or a portion of their their um, club the other day, valuing it at something like $4 billion or something, the mo- most expensive sports franchise in the world. I mean, at the top end, money has changed the game dramatically. I remember Heysel, I remember, I mean, the year after we won the Cup, you remember Hillsborough, Hillsborough, you know, you remember these things and Bradford and, and, and when they said, right, the, I think one of the reports came out after the Bradford fire said, right, and Hillsborough, the, the Taylor report, I think it was, said that all stadia had to be all seater, had to be this, had to be that, had to meet health and safety. And all the clubs in, in as one said, well, we can't afford this. Now you have Tottenham building a billion pound stadium for themselves. I think the bill, I think at the time, I remember reading somewhere, the bill at the time said about 400 million pounds to have great stadiums across the country. And football clubs said, we can't afford this. And that's part of the reason the Football Foundation was set up from the pool's money, I think, wasn't it? But, um, you know, you see Tottenham now building a million-pound stadium. You know, everybody's building brand-new stadiums. Wimbledon, AFC Wimbledon are moving into a new stadium if they can fund it. You know, from the top to the bottom, everybody's building brand-new stadiums with all the things that fans want, which are seats, even if they do stand up in them. But, are, but you know, decent retail facilities a, a, a comforting place to go and watch football and a safe place and the growth of women and children at games certainly women is you know is from my day in the 80s you'd never brought your well in the yeah late 70s early 80s you'd never brought your kids to the game you know, your wife even if your wife came you thought you were worried about how how it'd be I remember i remember taking my brother i got we were playing chelsea and my brother went over to chelsea with my wife at the time and after the game, my brother couldn't look after himself. And after the game, he said, I'm never going there again. He said, it's, I mean, it, it's horrendous, not just the language and the threats of violence. But these are all grown men. They ain't children. They ain't 18-year-old. They're, they're people in their 30s and 40s, you know, shouting vile abuse and, you know, being disparaging and, and threatening. And he said, he said he didn't feel safe. And he certainly didn't feel safe with a woman beside him he had to look after, you know. But that's changed. I mean, and change as I say, you, you could not in those days, you could not have ever envisaged. If someone had told you what football would be like today, you'd have said pie in the 
guy. How is that going to happen? And it all happened partly on the back of all seater stadium, but that, that, that came together with the introduction of sky and, you know, the two things have pushed it to another dimension. Okay. But so, we talk, cool. We're talking about the top of the game. I mean, yeah. a lot of things are the same at the bottom of the game, um, apart from the violence aspect, obviously. Sure. Sirius, little flick. Stroud. What a good shot. Oh, what a tremendous goal. What a tremendous goal by Kenny Stroud. The shot of the season here at the Counting Ground. You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. You almost joined Swindon, didn't you? Yeah, it's strange. I don't know whether I should really talk about this story, to be fair. Um, yeah, we got promoted. Bramford didn't like me uh, for whatever reason, although I was runner-up in the player of the year, the year we got promoted, when he took over from Morris that year I was talking about. I scored 10 goals. I was the second-leading goal scorer behind Trevor Senior, who scored 41. You know, just showed how much we relied on Trevor that year. I scored 10 from midfield, had a good season. Went in to have a chat with him at the end of the season. And he said, how do you think you've done? I said, I think I've had quite a good year, to be fair, thanks. He said, um, I don't. And those two words pretty much summed up it for me. I mean, I know he was a new manager. I know in those days the manager had to negotiate the wages. But I, I, I looked at him and think, you mad or what? And what criteria are you basing that? I played most, I played pretty much all the season. Um, leading goal scorer from midfield, you know, I, I, I was fit, I was strong, I had loads of plenty about me. And he said, no, no, don't even... Anyway, basically it was about wage. And, I, you know, in those days, you went in and tried to get a £10 rise. I came out with a £5 rise and I and I had a distinctive impression I wasn't for him. Started the following season, I was in and out of the team. Um, he made it plain I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be part of whatever plans he had. Um, and he said to me, um, go down and you go, you're going down to join Swindon. So I went down and met Lou Macari. We had a good chat, um, got home. And I said to my wife at the time, I said, looks like I'm going to, I've never moved before as a hometown boy, been at Reading seven years. You know, I was the type of boy that, that probably, you know, bought the local pub and told stories about when he played for Reading, you know? And so it was a big, massive thing to be told by your own club. You didn't, you weren't wanted. Um, and I was pretty much dazed, you know, I, I, my life was shot, you know, I thought it was the end of the world. Anyway, got home and I got a phone call from someone at Wimbledon to say, uh, Laurie, whatever you do, don't sign for, don't sign for Swindon. We want you at Wimbledon. And I thought, he said, come up, come up and meet, um, come up and meet the manager, uh, to the Hilton at, uh, Hilton on the M4 on the dual, car- dual carriageway there at Heathrow Airport, you know, the, the one on the right hand side. I think it was the Hilton at the time. I think it's Holiday Inn now. Um, and I went up, met Dave Bassett, who I'd made my debut with against. And he said to me, I remember him saying to me, I remember playing against you when you were when you were a 17 year old kid and you were just making your debut for Britain. And I said, Where was that then? He said, I was playing for Wimbledon. I said, Oh, I can't remember you, to be fair, Derry. So um, that is how we got started off. He said, uh, what, we, what was Swindon offered you? And I told him naively, you know, in those days that you didn't have agents. And I just said, I said, don't worry, we'll match that. The only different thing was, Reading at the time had got promoted to the third division. Swindon were in the fourth division and Wimbledon were in the second division. So a team, I was getting a rise. I was getting more money. I was getting a sign-on fee, you know, in hindsight. So more than I was getting at Reading. But a team in the fourth division offered me the same money as a team in the uh, division, two divisions above them. And 
I accepted it. And the only reason I accepted it was I wanted to play as high as high as I could. I wanted to conceive whether I was whether I was possible to play at that that level. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? The, the very thought that you've got two options, uh, both in the south of England, one is in the second division and one's in the fourth. Really, is a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, actually, Swindon would have been easy. I mean, it's forty minutes from my house, Swindon. Wimbledon took me an hour um, to get to, and yeah, and there wasn't. I mean, the, the, joking aside, the thing not when I look back at it. At that time, Swindon were paying bungs left, right, and centre, and obviously got relegated because of that afterwards, didn't they? If you remember under the Macari regime, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no stage, any stage in my negotiations with Lou. Did he offer me any money under the counter at all? <laughs> I think he perhaps he didn't really want me. And it was only it was only later on when it came out all the financial regulator people players were being paid cash in hand and cash here and cash there. I thought perhaps he didn't want me that much then because he never offered me any of those inducements. But ironically as well, I had a medical. I had a medical done at Swindon that day by the physio at the time. <laughs> and then I obviously joined Wimbledon, played 10 years at Wimbledon. When I came back to Swindon for my medical, the same doctor said, oh, I suppose we'll finish it off now, shall we? Because <laughs> he'd been the one that gave me the medical 10 years earlier. Yeah, that's right. It was Kevin Morris. And there is a picture of you at that medical in a suit where Kevin Morris is wearing his Adidas T-shirt and you're wearing your suit and you look utterly bemused <laughs> in the picture. Was that when I came back or was that no, when that's the, the original? Time, 1984. For, I, I, I was, I was, you know, I, I'd played seven years. I don't ever wanted to play for him. I didn't want to play for anybody else. It's my hometown team. I, you know, I was a local boy, you know, 10 minutes to work and... 350 odd games I've actually got it 305 games 31 goals over seven years so that you're talking you're talking third talking pretty much seven seasons eight so you're talking about 40 games a year so you know that that's that's not bad 40 games a year over those seven seasons you know never injured always there always and then told no yeah. you're not for me um so I was pretty good I was pretty good I've got to say and the only reason as I say the only reason I didn't go to Swindon you know was that I wanted to play in the second division. Ironically, I, so I played in the second division with Swindon, uh, with um, Wimbledon. We complete. I, I joined them at Christmas. We completed that season. Following season, we went up. So I went from Division Four as champ as as a promotion we read in. Played in Division Three for half a season. Played in Division Two for a season and a half. And I was in the, I was in the top division, Division One, within three seasons of that of of that. So I played all four. I played all four divisions in four seasons. I don't really know where to start when it comes to Wimbledon of this era because, you know, there were books written on it. Literally, everybody knows about the crazy gang and the antics and things like that. But Dave Bassett, as you said, is your first manager, and he really gets the best out of you in those early days, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I remember my first day in the dressing room, and I'm we we trained at Robin Hood roundabout. I don't know if you know it. I think one of the rugby teams trains there now, and it was a transport calf on the A3. It's the first one of the set of drunk traffic lights at um, on the A3 going towards London uh, at Kingston, and we literally trained there. And um, the dressing rooms were the Sunday Sunday pitches dressing rooms. You know, they they sometimes cleaned the muck off from the weekend, but it's literally a hangar and benches all around the room. It was, it was a Sunday Sunday football dressing room. And I sat down in the first team dressing room. They give me a, they give me my kit. And Alan Court was sat next to me, and he got changed. And he said, "Why have you joined Wimbledon?" He said, "We, we're shocking." He said, "Flaming manager, don't know what the, he's doing. The rest of the players, they're useless." 
said, we've got no chance of Flaming doing anything. We're getting relegated. So, and I am sat there my first day thinking, really? <laughs> and, of course, that was the Wimbledon way. And, um, you know, we, we then went on, as I say, we finished that season somewhere mid-table. We got promoted the following season. Gets to the top division. We finished sixth the first t- first time in the in the first division. I think seventh or eighth the following year, and win the FA Cup. So unbelievable, unbelievable journey. Managed by Bassett, who unfortunately after two the first year in the top division fell out with the chairman, fell out with the owner Sam Man, went on his way to Watford and Sheffield. Um, famously got two clubs relegated in the one season in Watford and Sheffield, <laughs> and. Um, we wanted to win the FA Cup. So what he thinks about that, I'm not sure. I mean, I know I know Dave has has something like seven or so um, promotions um, to his name. So I'm sure two of the, you know, I think he's got about six relegations as well, to be fair. Okay. But I mean, um, how he feels about missing out on that, that cup, I, I don't know. Because that is, you know, I played 17 years as a player and my career is hung, hangs on the, scored the winning goal in the cup final in 88. And um, I always say, you know, better players than me never played in the cup final. And certainly a lot better players than me never scored the win in the cup final. So to have that one, I'm quite happy for that to be my my template of my playing career. What was it like, though, as a player adapting from, you know, you, you used to play in Torquay, Halifax, Orient, and then suddenly you're playing against Everton, who were the championships here, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, those big hitters. What do you remember from that? And you remember, we our average attendance that year was um, six and a half thousand, I think. That was our average attendance that that year. I mean, you, you know, for some of the games, we had three thousand people in the ground. Um, so I, I think we played Aston Villa on a Tuesday night early on, and we had about three and a half thousand people in the stadium. Obviously, we played Man United, Chelsea, Tottenham. You could couldn't get in for love and the money, but the, the the ground only held about um, eight thousand, I think. Yeah. So. Uh, and that six and a half thousand is pretty much the Wimbledon hardcore. That I think the Wimbledon hardcore is about four and a half thousand, and they were the same hardcore that was at um, when we went to Sellers, and it's the same hardcore AFC now. It's about four and a half thousand people, you know. Anyway, going back to what was it like? We 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 were a unique. I think I always say this about Wimbledon. It's very hard to tell the story about Wimbledon because you had to people say what was it like, and it's it's a bit like a, a hurricane or a tornado. You know, in the middle of a tornado. So people tell me it's very calm. All of, all the stuff swirling around the outside is is doing the damage. Right at the epicenter of the tornado is very calm, and it was a bit like that with Wimbledon. You know, we were at the centre of it, and we that was our life. We just did it day in day out. Thought nothing of it. Got up to our antics, read in the paper what we were doing, went out and beat teams. Yeah, all the stuff that was going around around the outside is what other people saw. We just saw this is our life. Yeah. So we didn't know what we were doing. It's only in hindsight when you look back and you see what we actually achieved on the budgets we achieved and the personnel, not a player there had played at the top flight before they got there. You know, you, you read about Bournemouth doing well. Bournemouth have had millions of pounds injected into that club. You know, um, I think Wigan got there, but William, Wigan had millions of pounds injected by um, JD Sports, didn't they? Or JB Sports, um, Whelan, before they got there. We didn't have any money injected. In fact, we had to keep selling our players to Flaming keep keep us going. You know, every year another player was sold and sold and sold. You know, we were knocking out players to other teams left, right, and centre. Um, Dave Besson went on to be the richest, the most expensive goalkeeper in the world. When we went to Newcastle. Andy Thorne was the most expensive centre half until Keith Curl went to Man City and became the most expensive centre half. Terry Feeling went to Man City and was the most expensive left back in the 
or went to Crystal Palace and the most expensive left back in the world at one stage. You know, John Scales went to Liverpool and became the most expensive centre half in the. It, it was phenomenal. Every year, you know, we were selling players, our best player, setting setting records, not just English records, but you know, up there with world records. Um, we found another one. We're from the lower leagues and got on with it. Something that you couldn't do today in the modern game. You know that you, you lose. You know, Man City lose um, Deport and they struggle to find another one unless they spend hundred million pounds on it. You know, um, if, if Liverpool to lose uh, Virgil Van Dijk, they, they couldn't get a lower league centre half to come in and play for him. You know, it just doesn't work these days. So we did this year in year out, and we ploughed on and ploughed on and ploughed on. And again, once the Premier League came, they moved us to sell us. You know, we used to say we'd be the only team that played 38 away games a year. Um, so against all those odds, we, the, I, my, my saying is we were a unique group of players at a unique club at a unique time. And could you ever, could you ever do that again? No. We, were, we, had, we had a manager in Bassett that gave us the let's get up and fight them all type thing. Uh, you know, we had Bobby Gould came in, was a terrific buyer of players, bought some great players from the lower leagues, the John Scales, the Keith Curls from Reading, um, you know, those type, Terry Feelings, those type of players. And it all came together. And, you know, it all came together. And despite one or two managers that weren't quite up to it, you know, um, I think Peter With came in had a bit of a torrid time there. We went back to J- Joe Kinnear, who, with great respect to Joe, I mean, I know I'm player manager of the year for the first year he's, he's in charge. I mean, he just had to keep, he just had to keep a, a steady, a steady, a steady tiller on the ship, basically. Um, that's what Gouldy said when he came in. You know, he said, "You guys know what you're doing. You, you believe in what you're doing. Just carry on doing it." And we were, we were old school. We we fought, we battled, we we did all the things, the nasty things that you had to do. And we had some players amongst us as well, Dennis Wise, Glenn Hodges. You know, they could they could do some magic um, when we needed it. But we were, we, we had a, a way of playing. A, a belief in the way we played and, and we did it to the nth degree. Yeah, and it was Dennis Wise that crossed the ball for the the, the moment set play. of your career, yeah, the set play for what is the defining moment of your career, which is the 1988 FA Cup final. I'm 36 years old and I think that goal is one of the most played goals I've ever seen that isn't a Swindon player because it's a very popular one in the, in the, uh, in the montages when the FA Cup comes around every year. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's a it's a remarkable moment in football history, and you've talked about it a million times. My question to you, really, after you scored that goal against Liverpool, is because I spoke to your old assistant Giuliano Grazioli about his FA Cup moment for Stevenage and how much it changed his life. And his was like a third round, fourth round goal. Yours is yeah. the FA Cup final. How how just if you could show the magnitude of how much that has changed your life. Has it changed my life? I remember Vinny at the time was saying, or I saw him quoted as saying, he thought when he was a young player, if you won the FA Cup, you'd become a millionaire overnight. Now, you know, in our day, that didn't happen. In fact, we never actually got bonus for winning the FA Cup, can you believe? Because we, a um, couple of years before, we just got promoted from Division 2, Division 1, and myself and Dave Besson, on a, we were on pre-season go between uh, Norway and Sweden, or one of the Scandinavian countries, on a ferry, overnight ferry, and um, Sam and Man said, let's do the bonuses. And me and Dave, Alan Cork, sat down and did the bonuses as the experienced players. And he said to us, um, if we win the FA Cup, we sorted out all the, all the you know, win the league bonuses. And they said, 
And he said, the FA Cup. And he said, right. He said, if you win the FA Cup, I'll give you a million pounds. I'll give the team a million pounds. And we said, yeah, that's great. Let's get that written in. This is all the discussion, you know, jotting down and it'd be put into formally when we got home. Anyway, the following morning at breakfast, he's come up and he's gone, guys, 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 as Sam used to do. He said, that million pounds, that was silly. That was silly. We can't do that. We can't, we go broke. We couldn't, we can't do that. Of course, we you know, we never thought at any stage we'd win the FA Cup. So we've gone, yeah, Sam, don't worry about it. We're more worried about the £500 win bonus per, per, per league game than the million pounds winning the FA Cup. Okay. Two years later, so so at that stage, what we put in the in the contract was we would get an appearance money for getting to the FA Cup final of, I don't know, five grand or whatever it was, something. And you're thinking, well, if we ever get there, the five grand would do us. not going to win it, are we? Um and of course, uh, two years later, literally two years later from that meeting, we're holding it, getting to the cup final, week before the cup final. We're saying, Sam, there's no win bonus in the cup final in the, in the thing. He's like, oh, guys, guys, guys. I, unfortunately, I can't do anything about it because you can't change the bonus sheet during the course of the season. And I was PFA rep at the time. I said, no, Sam, I'll tell you what you can do, though. What you can do is, should we win it? We, I know we get appearance money, so that's fair enough. If that's our lose money. But should we win it? You can give us all the uh, the money that they get from the, the charity shield, money that the club get for appearing in the charity shield. Because the clubs in those days got about 100 grand for appearing in the charity shield. You know, it, it was their it was their thing. I said, you can turn that into a bonus for the players. And he's in a, in a meeting full of players. He's gone. He's looked at me and gone, Laurie, I don't think you are. I don't think you are with us at this moment. And it, it, his insertion was that be careful because you might not play in the final. And this is after we've played the semi-final. And at that moment, all the other players got up on mass. Don't even think about it, Sam. And um, pretty much, st- no, 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 no. I wasn't saying that. I wasn't saying that. And he was insinuating, "Don't be too pushy." Anyway, bottom line is, we got the money um, and distributed it pro rata afterwards. But those players that left, the Dave Bessons of this world, were really pushed out. He said, "He said, I didn't get that charity shield money for appearing in the charity shield appearance money." I said, "No, because you weren't at the club. Because you were up in Newcastle being a." being padded up with your flaming pound notes for, for, for signing for them. So don't go on about the money we got for the, got for the um, charity shield. But we got, but at the time we had no money for winning it, which was unbelievable. A little bit of space for Frank McAvenny. Away from Parker. Not from Bruce though. Nyholt with a shot, took a deflection, he did! With Nyholt has equalised to Swindon Town. And bottom of the table they may be, but they are made of stern stuff. You played three times for Northern Ireland in the 80s uh, against Turkey, Spain and Malta. Of course, you could have played for Ecuador through your, your father's side. In modern terms... Do you think there would have been more chance of you choosing Ecuador or would it have been always Northern Ireland? No, I had no. I mean, my dad was once removed. I mean, he moved to, he moved from Ecuador by his, fam, by his family. He was about five years old and as a British national. I had, I had no connection with Ecuador. I, I was never, I'm, I'm not a second generation Ecuadorian by any stretch of the imagination. My mum was from Belfast. Um, there was obviously more connection with Belfast. I'd been to Belfast. I'd, I had family in Belfast. And when they changed the rule, they changed the rule. Republic at that time were having terrific. They were getting to World Cup finals, European Cup. Northern Ireland got there since '84, they, or something like that. '82, I think it was Spain. And of course, they were missing out on all this money and all this, all this sponsorship. And, and they suddenly thought, right, we'll expand our rules, which at the time were where you were born or where your father was born. So they're expand typical Northern Irish. T- their expansion of the rules. By this time, the Republic were going to grandparents on either side. Which, when you go to grandparents on either side, 
really opens up your spectrum of people that can play for you. And that's why they've got people like Cascarino and Townsend, who had no, well, certainly Cascarino's thing, no actual connection with Ireland at all. And Townsend was very, very, but you, you can, you know, when you go to grandparents on either side, you are a big pool of people. Anyway, Northern Ireland, in their wisdom, decided to go where you were born, where your father was born, and would extend it to where your mother was born. <laughs> so on that equation, myself, Danny Wilson, and Kevin Wilson all made all made um, all made the squad, and we could come in and play. And me, we're all playing at the top level at that time. But in our first meeting, I remember Ian McFall, who was the assistant manager, who, who used to be the goalkeeper coach at, used to be goalkeeper and coach at uh, Newcastle at the time. He dragged me, Danny, and Kevin to one side and said, uh, "His opening words to us was, I know you three are English, but.'" <laughs> and that was our introduction to Northern Ireland football. But um, yeah, uh, for whatever reason, Billy Bingham didn't fancy me. I mean, he was playing League of Ireland players and uh, Irish League players in front of me at one stage, and I was competing for the. You know, I was playing in the, in the top flight in English football. I think I got three caps. I think Danny Wilson got something like 25, 30 caps, and I think Kevin Wilson went on to get 50 or 60 caps, which pretty much summed up. Uh, Billy Bingham's lack of success, I would have said. <laughs> I mean, it's a long, productive career at Wimbledon where, I mean, I think they famously said the football wasn't pretty, but it got the job done. But it did eventually result in a very brief move to a certain Swindon town, which is what brings you on to this podcast, really, isn't it? So, I mean, you were playing that season, 93-94, with Wimbledon. How did the move come about? I'd started the season. I was 34, I think. I was 34. I'd ruptured my cruise ship about two years previous to that, and and I wasn't as mobile as I I, I had been before. And I, I I was very wary of my knee. I mean, I had a re- I had a partial re- in fact I had, I had a partial rupture, so I didn't have a reconstruction. They just um, tied it up as best they could and said get on with it. Um, and so I was very wary of my knee. So I did I wasn't as mobile. I'd, I I was playing at Wimbledon. Um, Vinny had come back to Wimbledon after, I mean, I started my playing career. Vinny came in while I was already established in the team. We started together. Then he moved on to Leeds, Chelsea, Sheffield United. And he came back to Wimbledon the season before. Actually, he came back to season that season, I think. I started playing in the team. In fact, me, Robbie Earl and, and Vinny all started the season together, middle of the field. They accommodated all three of us. But as time went on, it was obviously going to be Robbie and and, and uh, Robbie and Vinny as a, as a midfield too. I, I started to appear on the bench, coming off the bench. And I, I, was, I, was, I knew my career was coming to an end. And I got a call one day saying, um, would you be interested in going to Swindon on the deadline day? Might be an opportunity for another year on, on your contract if they stay up. And I said, I wasn't going to get it at Wimbledon. And I, I, made, I made a settlement with Wimbledon. And I, I, Sam and I went to my... I'd been 10 years there. Didn't have a testimony. I said, Sam, look, uh, if you can look after me, um, I'd like the opportunity perhaps to go and I can perhaps get another season out in Swindon. If I can help Swindon stay up, they'll give me another year on top of what's left of the contract. And Sam was all right about it. He said, yeah, sure. So I settled up with Wimbledon. I was paid up to the end of my contract. So the money coming to to, to Swindon was pretty much, you know, um, extra monies in that respect. And I got a deal sorted out and I joined. By the time I got there, I could see why they were where they were. Like every player, you think you can change things. I think I came in my first game against Manchester United, didn't we? I think we drew against Manchester United, didn't we? Correct. Um, Canton are obviously famously sent off. And you're thinking, well, if you get on a run, as, as, as I'm always, as a manager and a player, I always thought, 
you know, from my first season winning the title in the fourth division championship, I always thought anything was possible. Winning the FA Cup with Wimbledon, getting promoted to Wimbledon top division, I always thought anything's possible, you know, and I've always been part of things that have happened. So I thought, you never know, we might, we might, you know, we get four or five wins, we might get ourselves out of this. But I think after that, I think, I think we drew at Man United. I think, do we go to Arsenal? You'll have to remind me of the game sequence. So Manchester United was first at home, then Blackburn away, who are, you know, future, there's a future championship win inside there. And we lose three one, and then and I play centre. I play centre forward in that game <laughs> for some reason. Lou John Gorman put me up front for some part of that game playing centre <laughs> forward, and I couldn't quite understand what was going on with that. I think Fjortov might have been off out at the time. And then I think it would have been Arsenal away where we got a point, and another good result. I mean, another great result, really. You know, and I, I'm thinking. Well, you know, that's not bad. Point Man, point at home to Man United, point away at Arsenal, right? We lost to Blackburn. But then I think the wheels came off after that, didn't they? I think, um, I think, I mean, I, going back full circles, I mean, my first my first game for Reading, as I said to you earlier, was against Wimbledon. My first full, my, la- my last full start in the league in this country was against Wimbledon. I know I played, I think Leeds was the game after that. I think it was the last game of the season. But I didn't start, I didn't start against Leeds, I don't think. No, you didn't. I think I think I might have come on a sub, but my last starting game was against Wimbledon. So one of life's great ironies, isn't it? That really that I started and finished against Wimbledon. What was it like playing uh, the, against your former employers of ten years? Very strange. Very strange. I think we got beaten, didn't we? Yeah, I, I think we were mullered. I mean, it, it just showed the difference between Swindon and Wimbledon, where I'd come from to what. And there was no real belief at this at Swindon at the time. I mean, in training during the week, phenomenal. So I saw people do phenomenal stuff, and I thought, bloody hell, this isn't a bad team. Come Saturday, some people didn't even arrive on Saturday. All of a sudden, they trained all day, all week, and then on Friday afternoon, for some reason, they weren't in the team. He said, "I said, what's happening?" He said, "Oh no, he's had a little pull." I said, "Really?" And, I, and at the time, I took it at face value. As a manager later on, I'd have, I'd have been fuming. And I think we conceded a hundred league goals, didn't we? And I think Sean Sean. Sean, the centre half, Sean yeah. Taylor got man player of the year, and I, I, I said to, to him or someone about it, how how does the centre half get player of the year when you've conceded under goals? I said it would, it would never have happened at Wimbledon, ever happened at Wimbledon that the centre half oh. centre half would have been flaming. <laughs> Sean was very popular. I think John Moncur got the main one, but Sean won awards all the time. It's... Sean, he was a lovely lad. Sean, I, I, I like I've met Sean, and you know, not, he, he was a, he was a colossus, but. The very fact that the Swindon fans vote for the player centre half when they concede under goals—you must think some of them have gone through him, surely. That—that—that <laughs> that, that, that summed up the club to a certain extent. I came from a killer club, you know. We were killers. I mean, we were killers on and off the field. I mean, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't stand up and count your, you know, do your work and do your corner. You were, you were counted out not by one person but by everybody, yeah. um, you know, from top to bottom. So we all knew and we all played under that. Coming to Swindon, it was very much laissez-faire. You know, it, it was coming to a different world completely, different culture completely. Lovely club, lovely people, but just you could see why they got relegated. And as I say, um, not only relegated, they they was the the financial repercussions then stuck hit when they got back in, didn't they? Again, and they got relegated, well, they got promoted again, and then got. Yeah, but all all those things combined, the money paid to people, people were signing contracts. And I'm thinking, you know, why are they signing people on contracts when they don't know where they're going to be next year? You know, how can you sign people when you're not sure what division you're in next year? And people are signing contracts and then sitting out. And it was it was horrendous, to be fair. I could see, it, it, I could see, you know, and, and John Gorman, bless him, he's a lovely guy. 
but he was too lenient to be honest I mean you needed to crack a whip at that club at that time and there wasn't anybody there to do it and I think the players took advantage of it and I suppose that because after Swindon that's where your journey into coaching management and coaching starts and although you know John Gorman was known to be the nice man of football, but it was probably, yeah, lovely guy. We played lovely football, but it was naive football that resulted us in conceding a lot of goals and, and getting relegated. But that's something... well, ironically, if I, t- I tell you a story about that, I went to meet him on the Wednesday. I, I, they 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 contacted me and I said yes, I would. Can you meet him on the? Can you meet John on the Sunday? I think it was a Sunday after you'd played Newcastle and you got done seven nil. Was it seven one? Yeah. <laughs> Seven one, and I'm speaking to John. I, I, I phoned up John and said, "Look, should I bother coming over? Because I'm thinking <laughs> they're down now. They ain't coming back from this. Why they bother? Why bother paying me money for ten weeks? Ten weeks. Um, in fact, it was more ten weeks because they paid the contract through to July. So although I signed in March, trench for deadline day, whatever day it was, the contract was payable to July thirty first. So it was more than ten weeks. Um, and I ten weeks of the season plus another flaming two months money on top of that. And I thought, well, why would they bother taking me? They're down. And I went, I found up John. I said, yeah, yeah, come over, come over. We had a lovely chat. And I said, oh, are we still doing this, John? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not a problem, not a problem. Yeah, come Monday. And he, we were talking about that. I said, and I asked about the game. He said, oh, I had a phone call from the manager. Is it Kevin Keegan? Was he, would he be a manager at Newcastle? Whoever the Newcastle manager was, had yeah. phoned him up after the game. He said, you played, you played better football than us. And I'm sat there looking at John thinking, if anybody had done that to anybody at Wimbledon, we'd again, why don't you just go? <laughs> But John, uh, you know, he, they, I, just, I, I didn't like to say you just lost seven one. What type of football have you played? Well, it's lovely. I mean, I, I don't, and that that was the that was my introduction to to Swindon, and that pretty much summed up my time at Swindon, I think. And do you sort of take that sort of element, that experience that you had at Swindon, when you moved into coaching in the Republic of Ireland and then beyond? Yeah, of course. You you take you try and take something from everywhere you've been, the good things and the bad things. Sometimes. The bad things can help you as much as the good things because you think, well, I won't do that. You know, managers that I've not, that I've not, not got on with or not, who I felt have not treated me in the right way. I think, well, I, you know, don't do what they do. do. This is what how players expect to be treated. This is what you're expected to do. This is how you're expected to treat everybody the same. And I, I, I you take all of those aspects in, um, and then you mould it into your own with your own character to form what is your managerial career. If they want. Send me off. Every game? No problem. I will win this league anyway because my team is a strong team. They're worth. We play football. Even if they send me off, we win this league. No problem. And I do want to talk about your managerial career quickly before before you go. Um, it's another show. It's another show, yeah, isn't exactly. it? We'll be, we'll be very quick. We'll, we'll sweep through it because you started in Ireland and then went to Wimbledon Reserves after that, which is something that a lot of people like to see from football coaches but they start not necessarily at the bottom but they cut their teeth you know get involved with the nitty-gritty before moving on to the to the main jobs of english football yeah i mean those days have died to death now haven't they? i mean they're straight from player straight to manager now and it's straight um no nowhere in between i mean i, I went to ireland because I, I i got a chance to go to sligo i wanted to see whether i enjoyed management i wanted to do it away from people looking at me every week yeah. And I went there and I, I did enjoy it. I got a call to come back to women to do the reserves. And I did that for about four years, won the reserve league one year there. And then I got a chance to move up to the first team at Wimbledon. But for whatever reason, I didn't, it, it, it didn't work for me. And, and um, I decided to move. I was first team coach and I decided to move to, um, I got a chance to move to Wickham and be my own man. I, I, I found it very difficult being first team coach. When I was reserve team manager, I was in charge of my own team and I ran my own ship. 
and I found it very difficult to be a, a number two to someone else, certainly in that time. And I think that the manager at the time was very wary of me as well, being being a sort of iconic uh, Wimbledon player. So I moved on to Wickham and I spent five years there. Fantastic opportunity, fantastic club. Uh, we obviously got to the semi-final of the FA Cup in in um, 2001, you know, against Liverpool. Um, I'm just looking at the team in front of me because I've got a little thing about it. Who I, at the time had up front, they had Robbie Fowler and Michael Owen, Nicky Barmby, and they brought off Owen and Fowler and brought on uh, Emil Heskey and Steven Gerrard. Um, it just shows the calibre of their team at the time. You know, this is when they won five trophies in a in a in a in a in a year, didn't they? Do you remember the European Cups and yeah. the and we beat and we lost two one. They scored us. We held them for about eighty seventy eight minutes or something before they scored the first goal. So that was a tremendous achievement for a club of that that standard. Good good base to learn. Unfortunately, like everything with um, on digital, things went pop. You know, we had to get rid of our good players and replace them with players around £200 a week. That's never going to, uh, you know, every, with on digital, my chairman came back to me and said, you'll never believe how much money we've got from on digital. It's something like £500,000 a club for Division Division 3. And when a deal's too good, it's too deal. And then, of course, obviously when that pop, all of a sudden you had to cut that half million pound out of your budget, you know which is a hard thing to do when your budget is about one and a half million pounds. So you have to replace, you can't replace like for like. Results went down, went down. I got the bullet. But fortunately, um, those three games at Northern Ireland put me in the frame for the Northern Ireland job. And when the Northern Ireland job came up, not long after I got the sack from Wimbledon, or sorry, from uh, Wickham, I decided, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and I got the job, fortunately. Had tremendous times. Beat, beat England. I think they're only, they're only, they're only, they're only, qualifying loss under Sven's time in charge at England I think um, it's incredible I mean, unbelievable I mean I don't know if you've ever been to Windsor Park no. it, you know Windsor Park anybody will tell you that I think David Becker famously said he'd never heard a noise like it from 20,000 people I haven't been to the new the new rebuilt one but certainly at that time um, so we did that we beat Spain yeah. having been down 1-0 2-1 we beat him 3-2 with David Healy Hadrick that is unbelievable and that is before they went on for their six year run I think they lost. I think they lost once. Once other in the qualifying group to Sweden. Yeah. Thereafter, they went five, year, six years, European Cup, World Cup, European Cup, European Championships, World Cup, European Championships. Where they lost. I think they lost two games in the next six years or something. Yeah. Um, and you know, in that in that front line was Raúl, Torres. You know, phenomenal, phenomenal night at, at um, in Ireland. And that led on to me coming back to the Premier League. So getting sacked from sacked from a third-tier English club and three years later being brought back into the Premier League, which is, uh, uh, you know, shows how well um, we did at Northern Ireland at the time. A, li- a little bit, like Swindon, to be fair, when I took over there, it was very much, yeah, we turn up, yeah. we lose, we go home, and if we can have a drink while we're here, all the better. <laughs> and we turned that, I mean, they finished bottom of their group before I took over, hadn't scored a goal in 13, hadn't won a game in 13, hadn't scored a goal in 14 games, literally. I mean, I thought, must be able to score a goal. You know, even if we lose, we could score a goal. And my first three things I said was, my first three things are to score a goal, win a game, and then go up in the rankings. And we scored in our first game, although we lost it. We won a game, uh, the next game, and then we went from 127th to 24th in the FIFA rankings. Sorry, 124th to 127. I got 97 places before I left. I I wanted to get that 100 places (laughs) because that's quite an achievement. 
um but we didn't but it led me on coming back to the back to this country the premier league which is you know where everybody wants to manage at the end what you're saying there reminds me a bit of paolo de canio in the sense that you had big ideas ideas that some people might not like and when you go up to the next level and that's premier league management even though you have the same intentions, it doesn't quite work. What was it like working with the... I know you brought in a couple of your guys from Northern Ireland to play as well, like Healy, but what was it like managing those personalities in, in, a, in a tough atmosphere like the Premier League? Yeah, um, again, I, I'd always... You know, you're right. I mean, Northern Ireland was a pushover team before I got there, and we changed the mentality. We changed the mentality that we could we could qualify. We could get... And when I left, we were top of the group, and... This was a group that had Spain, uh, Sweden, and uh, Norway. I think it was Spain, Sweden, and Norway. I think were, when Norway were a, a, a decent side as well. Sorry, Denmark, Denmark, Sweden, and, and and Spain in the same group. And we were top of it at the halfway stage. And that mentality of of you know something different. It, it, the Aaron Hughes, the Steve Davis, they were brought up in that mentality where they could achieve stuff. And I, I you know, I don't take any credit because Michael and he was a fantastic job at Northern Ireland and they had four years after with Nigel Wellington where they went back to what they were before but I think that the, the, the seeds have been sown there that they could achieve stuff if they believed what they were trying to achieve and got them to finals again I went to Fulham a lower league a team that were just happy to stay up players that were I mean I, I said to my assistant after after um we got, we got, we beat Liverpool. Ironically, again, my, 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 me and Liverpool come up like me starting and finishing at Wimbledon. Me and Liverpool, you know, FA Cup won against them. Then they beat me in the semi-final at, at Wickham, and then by beating Liverpool, prior to their, they had a, they had a European Cup semi-final. I think on the on the, the midweek, and they put out a weekend team against us at, at Wimbledon at. Uh, Fulham and that win pretty much kept us up. I think something Neil Warnock still complains about to this day, but it also got me the job. But for the last, so going to the last game, I said to the players, "Look, show me what you can do." We went to Middlesbrough and we were shocking, got beaten three one. I said to my assistant, "Or oh, on the way back, we need major surgery here. This team, I'd only got the job because they was they'd been struggling under uh, uh, Chris Coleman, and they thought that they would go down if they stayed with him for the last five games. So to change five games from the end is quite a thing to do. You know, they'd lost confidence that he was going to keep them up." I think they got beaten Man United or something four or five nil the week before I took over. They, they'd been smashed somewhere. So after the end of the season, I said we need, and we did. We took. I think there was twenty players in and out. In hindsight, it was too many, um, and and I was gone before Christmas um, the follow that season. But the, the the change was in hindsight. My one mistake was the change was too many, too quickly, and the old guard. And some of the players I brought in weren't of the right calibre either, to be fair. But th- th- there wasn't a bait. I should. It should have been. I should have been more build on rather than reconstruct. And I thought I'd be given the time to reconstruct. And ultimately, once you drop into the bottom three, you're not. There was a bit of wait for the next job, which was Barnet, where you almost take them to Wembley, but Swindon got in the way. And then that brings us to present day. I, I took over a team in the Greek league, and the only time I've ever been relegated as a manager, I, I, I saved. I saved Wickham when I took over. I turned around Northern Ireland. When I took over, I saved Fulham. When I took over, I saved Barnet. When I took over, so I got a job in in Greece, and we we did everything. We, we took about one one and a half points per game on average, which should be enough to keep you up. But in Greece, it's a slightly different scenario, and we ended up going last game of the season. We were out of the out of the relegation positions going to the last game, but we had to match the, the three teams below. One team was already relegated. We had to match the two teams below us. Three got relegated. 
Um, and we were we were playing away at Olympiacos, who were celebrating winning the league for about the nth time. And had beaten Man United that season and knocked them out of the Champions League. So, you know, we're a decent side. Um, and we were well, one of the better sides. And we held them for 90. We held them for 80 minutes. And then I got a telephone message that one of the other teams, both the other teams are both winning. Um, one had just scored with about 10 minutes to go. And they're both playing at home. So we had to go out and try and get the win. We conceded a goal in injury time, lost 1-0. That's the only time I've been relegated. And it was uh, it was difficult, to be fair. It was a bit of a knockback. Because oh, you, you, no matter what your career is, you think, well, this is something I do do. You know, yeah. I save clubs. So to actually be relegated was um real jolt to the system. I came back. There was some domestic stuff as well with my mother and such, right, which, which didn't have, you know, she passed away. So that, that, that knocks you back as well. And I applied for some jobs, but there was no interest whatsoever, to be fair. I was surprised. And I mean, the jobs I really wanted, there was no interest in. I got sniffs at jobs that I didn't particularly want. And, you know, there was nowhere to go with those jobs. Um, it was just filling, filling the time thing. So I, I, I you know, fortunately, I, I, I didn't need to work. Um, and I've done done some stuff. I'm doing an MBA at the moment. I've, I'm on an MBA course um, at, at University of Salford. Um, see how a sports organisation whether I go back into the game or not I don't know I mean as I say I have no doubts that I could manage clubs and help clubs but the, the lower leagues I think perhaps rightly should be younger managers um, when uh, when what's name went to Swindon um, the lad from Liverpool um, as manager I'm trying to think of his name he was he was joint, joint manager with Julier at one stage um Roy Evans, I remember him coming to coming into our room. I'm thinking, you've been at Liverpool, you've been at European Cups, you've been here. That what are you doing managing Swindon? With the greatest respect, and what are you doing managing at this level? You know, this shouldn't be for managers like you. This this should be for young people learning their teeth. And I still think that's the way it should be for young people learning their teeth. Of course, you get to the Championship, um, even even the Premier League now. They always want the new kid on the block. That's what people are looking for. They want the new kid on the block. They want a fresh face. Um, you know, you see the appointment at Swansea, someone who just managed an academies before being given the Swansea job. Um, you see you see the, the German managers that come in from the being reserve team manager at in the at um, Borussia Dortmund, you know, at Norwich and at Huddersfield and at Huddersfield again. You're thinking they all want they want foreign is great, young is great, fresh is great, you know, some the next best thing. And you get these people going round. I mean you know, and you're thinking the Sam Allardyce of this world are, are, are frowned on, you know, despite what he's done as a manager, you know, they want the fresh young thing. So management, I think, has perhaps gone for me. Um, you never say never in my job, but I, I can't see where I'd want to go back or where I could go back. But um, I think I have, I have stuff to offer in football in some shape or form. What it is, I don't know. So I'm doing an MBA at the moment. Um, it's in CEO of a sports organisation. Um and we'll see where that goes. Well, even if you don't go back into football, you have 40 years of FA Cup International, managed abroad, managed internationally, managed in the Premier League, over 200 appearances in the Premier League. You take that all day long at the start of the career. Yeah, I mean, when I started, you know, I I, I didn't even think I'd be a footballer. I, after, 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 this is how naive I was, after winning the fourth division championship, I was 19. Um, I'd got a place at Loughborough University and I went to see Morris Evans and said, Morris, you know, I want to go to university because I want to be the first family to do it. It's something I want to do. Um, thinking, well, he said, well, all the best, see you later. And he said to me, well, we'll give you a three-year contract. Uh, we want to sign you a three-year contract. So 
I, I signed a three-year contract and one season while I was at Loughborough, I played more games than anybody else at the club. And people said, people said how did you do that? It's, at the time, you just do it. And I enjoyed it and it was, I thought nothing of it. So, you know, from that experience to playing, going all the way when I was chucked out by Reading to ending up at, you know, Wimbledon then going on to win the FA Cup final, you know, from there leading on to, to managing at Wickham, semi-final again, then going on to beating England for Northern Ireland, beating Spain, you know, moments. And then back in the Premier League, you know, even though it was for a short space of time. I remember that Kevin Cosner film, he's an old baseball player, isn't he? Where he talks about the time he had in the in the big league, where they carried just where they carried your club for you to the dugout, and you know I've been there, and uh, you know, uh, and I've enjoyed my time along the journey along the way, and as I say, um, you know it's been it's been I've enjoyed football, I still enjoy football, I go down and watch Reading when I can, and it's been my life, but sometimes you know you have to think well, I don't want to be the the sad old man that's always going on about it, I want to be I want to be fresh and reinvented, so as I say, I decided an NBA. And I'm, I'm happy at the moment. Fantastic. And that was a wonderful hour whirlwind through a, a tremendous career. Laurie Sanchez, thank you very much. Thank you. The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford, and the artwork is provided expertly by John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. Come on, boys. It's a grand Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.